Hi everyone, we are back in the studio uh, and welcome back to another episode of the Premier Crew. Ben and I again are tasting uh, and discussing three awesome wines and we're looking forward to showing them to you guys. Uh, but before we get stuck into that, Benny, my brother, how are you doing? Yeah, very well, very well, man. Um, episode, solo episode number three for us. Um, racking through these, um, really excited by today's lineup. Uh, got some, yeah, pretty, pretty awesome wines. We'll talk about them. Talk about those more in a minute, but yeah, man, all good. Yeah, all good. yeah. How's your, how's your week been? You've been playing a bit of squash. Yeah, yeah. So for the, those that don't know, I picked back, picked uh, squash back up uh, about four months ago now, um, and uh, befriended local, you know, a few few local lads in the in the um, better health in the better health leisure centre. Yeah, um, actually, it's really good because there's basically it's really hard to find squash courts in London, um, and these are right on our doorstep. So I've been playing squash every day or every other day for about five months now getting back into fitness yeah you're looking lean uh, yeah lean. lean mean clean and green my friend yeah 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 um well i was gonna say yeah yeah it's, it's kind of crazy that you also play by yourself i do yeah 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 um well when people aren't available to play you just you know smash the balls yeah, yeah. <laughs> basically you spend 40 minutes so yeah twat the ball against the wall by yourself but it's you know it's good it's good for the fitness um i'll be doing it after this funny enough my, my um, challenge was squash it's just that because I've never, pl- well, I don't play and I'm just crap at rap- racket sports. Like whenever someone hits the ball, I just get, I just go for a run around because I just like going left, right, center. It's just, yeah, it's yeah. just, a, yeah. It's, but that's why it's so good, you know? Well, yeah, good for the fitness. Good for the fitness, good for the fitness. But yeah. Right, let's get stuck in some wines. Um, okay. Take us away on the first one, the white. Yeah. So really exciting white today. Domain Schlumberger. So it's a white wine and guys bear with us. We're back in Alsace already uh there are reasons for that we'll come to that later but essentially there's, there's so much to explore there so it's a white wine from Alsace the great variety is Gewürztraminer um previously we had a Riesling on the show so this is Gewürztraminer uh, 100% Gewürz and uh it's a Grand Cru so pretty cool stuff um we'll get sort of get into that uh, more later but essentially it's a it's a top wine from a top producer and a top site within the region of Alsace um so yeah really looking forward to really looking forward to, to to trying it basically um bit of history about Alsace and uh we, we've already run through yeah, it so just, we'll just for all our listeners the producer is Domaine Schlumberger and just for reference you can buy this from a, a retailer called Noble Green Wines and I think it's what priced at 31 pounds 34 pounds 34 pounds yeah if you want if you want to buy six it's 31 but yeah probably just a recap on Alsace, remind everyone where we're at and, and, and what we're doing there. Um, we, we've previously featured a wine on our on our program from Alsace. As I mentioned, we're back here already. So Alsace is on the eastern side of France uh, and it, start, it sort of runs north to south from um, Strasbourg down to Mulhouse. Uh, essentially, it's a it's a long sort of thin strip of, uh, of a wine growing region. Um, and they mainly focus on, you know, Riesling and Gewürztraminer as well, and a few other predominantly white, white grape varieties, um, which we're going to be looking at today. Alsace has kind of gone, just t- touching on the history, flickered between French and German ownership over the last, what, 400 years or so, yeah. give or take, since World War II, back in the hands of the French. And the cool thing about that is that you've got these really weird mixes of, you know, dialect and traditions and names and uh, you know, wine bottle styles and food and food and yeah, food. You can buy some funky schnitzels in in yeah. in, uh, in Alsace, like big white sausages <laughs> full of like yeah, it's it's pretty delicious. Sauerkraut, sauerkraut, that all that kind of vibe. Yeah, so you've got this like weird Germanic and also French mix um, that features a lot in the wines. But I'd say predominantly the winemaking style is more on the French side 
fairly traditional. Um, so that's kind of just a bit of bit of context about about Alsace. This is from right in the south, um, literally at the, the southern tip of Alsace, uh, and the Grand Cru site, as I mentioned, is called Kessler. Um, so it's one of fifty-one Grand Cru sites in Alsace. So there are there are quite a few out there. Uh, Domaine Schlumberger has four of the fifty-one sites, or produces wine. produces wine from four of the fifty-one sites. Um, and actually, kind of luckily for them, uh, it takes into account about fifty percent of their total sort of vineyard ownership is on Grand Cru sites. Yeah. So we'll get a we'll tell you how that happened in a bit. Because it's one um, of the things. Because in our first episode, we had the Domain Rally Gasman entry level Riesling, mm. and one of the things we didn't really discuss was this Grand Cru. Uh, classification and it was introduced in Alsace I think in sort of the 1970s Uh, and a crew site for anyone who's unfamiliar whether it's Premier Crew or Grand Crew is a sort of uh, naming convention you can place on a piece of land particularly well suited to ripening grapes and and producing a great crop. Um, And that could be due to altitude or exposition to the sun allowing for uh, you know a better ripening of the grapes for example. Yeah. Depends on the region and depends on the specific territory, but those are a couple of things that can influence it. Yeah, exactly. Soil types, another. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a common. It's it's really like why is this piece of land uh, so good for, for for growing wine? Yeah, and it wasn't without a little bit of controversy the, introdu- the introduction of that um, system. But essentially, yeah, as Ben said, you know, it's like fifty-one uh, Grand Cru sites, and Domaine Schlumberg is just a really good producer for um, trying the Grand Cru sites because they've got four. As it was Ben says, fifty percent of their production, but they've got them in four um, Grand Cru sites, and they're all in the south. So it's a good one if you want to compare and contrast a couple of really top uh, Grand Cru sites. Then Domaine Schlumberg is quite a good one to go for, and they've got quite a funny history with that, don't they? Well, they do. So basically, <clears throat> there's this guy called Nicholas who set the sort of set the winery up uh, back in 1810 by buying twenty hectares of land of of of, of vineyards. Um, yeah, well, it's 200 plus years ago now. So there's, there's a, you know, a fair bit of history there. Um, it was then taken over three generations later, uh, by a guy called Ernst, who unfortunately for him at the time, um, sort of, uh, took, took the role of leading this winery whilst phylloxera was sort of ravaging the vineyards. For those that don't know, phylloxera is like a, it's essentially a little bug and it affects the rootstock of the vines. And essentially, it kills the it, it destroys the root system of the vines and ultimately kills the vines. It was a massive problem in well across yeah, Europe in throughout the nineteen hundreds. Yeah, exactly in the nineteen hundreds, and that's why through what into you're, the sort of twentieth century, what you often see, which is like also brings in you know you often hear this old world new world distinction between uh, you know countries in Europe essentially. Uh, being the old world and then anywhere else essentially being the new world. And in oversimplistic terms, that's how people think of it. But it's interesting because to get the vines back up and running after um, the sort of, after phylloxera sort of took hold, they actually used American rootstock uh, because that was resistant to phylloxera. So it's kind of crazy that the only way uh, that European vines sort of got back on track was using sort of an American plant. Mm. Yeah, they literally took... Well, vine roots of vines from yeah American American soil brought them over, yeah. planted them here. Pretty 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 mental, really. Um, there are some vineyards that didn't actually get affected in Europe by phylloxera. Um, fairly few and far between. And um, if you ever have a wine from a 
pre-flock store or vineyard, then you're going to be paying a bit of a premium price for that just by default of the fact that it's... They're going to be old vines. It's going to be, yeah, it's going to be super old, super old. Um, but Schlumberger took advantage of this. Yeah, so basically Sch- Schlumberger, well, once flocks are happened, uh, you know, all the farmers, all the wine growers thought, you know, that the, we can't produce wine. Uh, the kind of land was devalued and they had nothing to sell. So they kind of, they just all left in pursuit of other... Uh, career path, essentially, or go and make wine elsewhere. Um, but Schlumberger uh, thought this was a great opportunity to actually buy up a lot of land in the region. Um, and it wasn't all at once, but he, he, essentially, he essentially bought a load of land and they now own 130 hectares of vines within, uh, within Alsace. And what he did when he bought all these when he bought all these plots uh, that weren't previously his, he then uprooted everything and replanted all the vines um, in rows that allowed, I don't know how to say this, so the best exposition to the sun yeah. to enable ripening um, and to ensure that, um, you know, the grapes going to be, you know, reach, reach ripeness um, every year. So he literally just sort of set the, set the tone for what the vineyard was going to do going forward. And now they own, I think they're one of the biggest producers yeah. and landholders in the whole of Alsace. Yeah. And he's a, they, they're also pretty clever, aren't they, in terms of, you know, uh, I think there's, I've never actually heard of this before, but there's some sort of environmental rating that they've got. And they've got sort of the highest level rating, so treating the vineyard with environmental care. And I think it, um, they don't even use any machinery in the vineyard. It's all, all the sort of viticulture is done by hand and they even use horses yeah, instead of yeah. machines to sort of plow the fields. <clears throat> so yeah, definitely a, a high respect to the environment. Um, and this one is uh, a Gewürztraminer, yeah, Gewürz, which is obviously Gewürz. not a great variety we, we've had on uh, the show. And it's probably more in the wacky and wonderful camp, this. Um, just in the sense that, you know, people probably don't drink Gewürztraminer every day. It's also a bit of a mouthful to say. Um, and typically it's, you know, one of these grape varieties that's, you know, really aromatic. Mm. Uh, you know, it's kind of like typical sort of tasting notes you'd read in a sort of wine text, but would be things like lychee, Turkish delight. Yeah. Mango, like yellow fruits, what, peach, what, what, what spices you, as well. Yeah. What, what are you getting on this one? Oh, ask me in a sec. I'm actually, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you haven't tasted it. Yeah. Well, the other thing we should probably say about this and all the Alsatian wines is that th- this one is probably one of those that can be quite adaptable for different um, situations. Yeah. In the sense that it does have a relatively high residual sugar um, content. That's not to say it's completely sweet, like a sort of pudding or dessert wine, but it does have a bit of residual sugar. And what that means is that you can use it as an aperitif. You could even potentially have it after dinner, but it's also got that richness and flavor profile where, you know, if you're having spicy dishes like, you know, I don't know, Thai food or Southeast Asian food, you know, it's probably quite a good pairing with that. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. At least, at least that's what the textbook will tell you. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, th- I think absolutely it's like a classic. Riesling also falls into that camp because of the acidity that it carries. Um, but Gewurz has this um, lovely silky, slightly richer uh, sort of texture to it. Um, that with the, the acidity that you get as well, it kind of creates this, yeah, as you said, versatile wine that you can use for, you can use for, um, use for quite a lot of stuff. I mean, we've had plenty of Gewurz before, um, particularly, you know, we're out in Austria, that kind of thing. Austria is also, you know, big Gewurz producer. Um, and we basically really, really enjoy them as a, as a, as a great variety. Um, and I think, yeah, just cool to have this. It's I, I don't know if we mentioned this, but it's 2018. So it's now got about five years, five years of age to it. Um, and, you know, it's just, you know, there, there's vintages, back vintages available, um, you know, on the market as well. It's just quite nice to have something that's not hot off the press. Got a little bit of bottle age. and what, something What's you can so actually... nice about it is that 
although I said that sugar content is relatively high, mm. um, you know, versus say the dry whites, like I say, a Pinot Grigio you find in the pub, let's say. Um, what what is really nice about it is because the texture of it is quite oily and viscous, and then there's enough acidity to lift it. The sugar kind of like is all in check, mm. and it's actually just a really just unctuous, rich wine um, with just a really like slightly different flavor profile. Super silky and smooth on the palate. Yeah, and I wouldn't necessarily say this is like uh, a Gewurztraminer that's screaming Gewurztraminer in the sense that mm. you get some that genuinely smell and taste like a Turkish delight, really perfumed and sort of floral, rose petaly. Yeah, it's a classic, classic yeah. note of, um, of that. As but well. I wouldn't say this one necessarily is that, but it's still like in terms of like. Uh, how typical it is but i would say it's like a really nice a really really nice wine yeah com- completely agree i think it's i think it's fantastic yeah. um also we should just mention we got this from a wine retailer called noble green wines um it's a really really nice family run business um and they've just got a really good selection they've got a great range sort of under 20 pounds um of just really good good value wines but then also once you get sort of above that 20 pound mark they've just got a great set of sort of classic wines everything you know hopefully we'll be getting some on but things like you know Fontodi Chianti Classico uh you know Marcel Lapierre Morgan just really good classic wines um so I'd highly advise checking it out and their delivery service is incredibly reliable so if you're planning you know some wines for the weekend uh definitely definitely go and check them out online uh and and get stocked up yeah, yeah, exactly. If you're living in West London, they're based in uh, Hampton. But as as Hugo said, they run a really good delivery service. So wherever you are, yeah, check them out because they've got 12, 1,200 wines on offer, basically. Um, they also do craft beers. And I think it's either like, two, I think, 200 spirits as well. So it's kind of got everything you need. So yeah, do, do check it out. Cool. Um, let's take it away with the second wine then. So the second one um, is a red wine. And we're now in Italy with this wine. Um, we're in northeast Italy in a region uh, called Trentino. Um, and this is a wine produced by a producer called San Leonardo. Uh, the wine's called Terre de San Leonardo. And it's a blend of Bordeaux grape varieties or varieties typically found in Bordeaux. Uh, it's 50% Cabernet Sauvignon, 40% Merlot and 10% Carmenet. And we bought this one from Honest Grapes and it retails, I think, at about 1990. Yeah, 1990, yeah. Um, Yeah, so a really good wine. Just to provide like a little bit of context, I mean, Italy is one of those, you know, wine countries that's so diverse. It's, you know, in terms of producers, winemaking styles, grape varieties, it's pretty hard to make generalizations. But I think when people think of Bordeaux varieties in Italy, their minds typically go instantly to Tuscany. And there's even a phrase for a type of wine um, where non-Indigenous grape varieties, so international varieties like Cabernet Sauvignon, planted in Tuscany uh, and bottled, are called Super Tuscans. And they represent some of the finest um, wines in Italy. Um, And, you know, names such as Sassicaia, Ornolaia, Massetto, that sort of prop up the Italian fine wine market, um, are the types of wines you think of. Um, and Northeast Italy, you know, is not really necessarily associated with those. I mean, they've got some really exciting white wines that you can try, you know, Alto Adige, Friuli, um, and, you know, some cool white grape varieties that you can follow, like Riboglia Giala. And then the reds are sort of more like Valpolicella, uh, Amarone, quite big and powerful, the, the Amarones are, certainly. Um, but it's San Leonardo, really, in that region who's one of the main producers that has always specialised in sort of these international varieties. Um, 
And they started planting Carmenere in sort of the 1800s when they started making wine. Then they, in the 1900s, they did, they started planting Merlot and, <clears throat> and, and Cabernet. Um, and, you know, that sort of led us um, um, to present day. They're based in the Adige Valley in the south of uh, Trentino. Uh, and they're sort of like positioned um, beneath two big mountains. So it's quite a cool climate. And that sort of brings a sort of freshness to the wine, cold nights, brings the aromatic profile up. Uh, and they're just really, really awesome wines. And we were first introduced to San Leonardo um, via Honest Grapes. Um, and yeah, to mention that because we, I, I actually won via Honest Grapes uh, a free ticket um, to an online tasting uh, with one of the members of the family who runs the property, uh, Anselmo, uh, who, who really talked us through all the wines. Um, do you want to just talk about that tasting? Because it was pretty cool. Yeah, it was really cool. It was quite lucky for me. because basically, <clears throat> Hugo and I lived together and I was essentially got the sort of invite because Hugo had won the ticket and there were five yeah. wines that we were, we were trying. Um, sent to us in the post as well, which is quite cool. What, the wines, the samples? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was all done like really effectively. Each wine was like, you know, labeled, put into a little sample packet so you knew exactly what you were getting. Um, and then we kind of logged on to the tasting. I think we had five vintages, didn't we? Yeah, five dating vintages. Back to the 2000, dating back to 2000. Yeah, 2000 yeah. was the oldest. I think we had the 04 definitely, the 10 definitely, and the 15. Uh, yeah. But we had one other vintage, perhaps the 08 or the 7 or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think... What just a, yeah a really cool tasting it was run like really well by by honest grapes but um I think just a really cool experience to be able to try and have access to those wines particularly in back vintages so San Leonardo the sort of the big brother of the tear that we're drinking today um, is a slightly different beast and does require quite a lot of bottle aging this is very much you know this is the the really good value entry level wine um, that you can you know th- I think we're drinking the 2019 vintage but you know it's very very accessible. The, the San Leonardo, the main wine, you kind of want to leave that for um, yeah. a bit of time. And I think having had the vintages back to 2000, you can kind of see why, because they just improve with, they just improve with age. Because the 2000 was in that tasting was my favourite. And we had that tasting in 2020 as we were sort of coming was out. Was that far back? Yeah. As we, it was, no, 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 2021. Oh, 2021. But essentially the wine had had 20 years yeah. um, and it was just drinking like, so so well and it wasn't even one of their more powerful vintages so i think that kind of says all you need to know that you know if you've got a top vintage some of the recent vintages like 16 have been really terrific mm. and that's probably going to need a good 25 years uh yeah to, in our opinion to sort of be in um peak peak drink, drinking window mm. um but yeah so that was an awesome experience and then from there we sort of got to know some of their entry-level wines and this is the tear um, which is the sort of entry-level wine that they offer. Um, and what's cool is what San Leonardo have done quite cleverly is, you know, they've used oak on the aging of it very, very uh, sparingly. So it's fermented, I think, in uh, cement. And then the aging, 80% of it is in concrete vats, whereas 20% of it is in sort of old uh, French barrels. But I think what that does is it, you know, it keeps the freshness of the wine. Mm. It makes sure it is for early drinking and it's just got a really nice, um, fresh profile. I mean, we, we had a slight, uh, sniff and a taste before. Um, and yeah, it's really delicious. You know, you get that sort of like Cabernet Bordeaux style, but I would say it's even, you know, in some ways fresher. Uh, and what's nice is, as I said, they've made it for early drinking. So it's just really good. And what I'd say with this one is it's one of those where it's a real, real crowd pleaser, you know, whether you're, um, you know, looking to do a sort of dinner with friends or whatever it is, or, you know, you're just looking for a, you know, any night, um, 
you know, a wine to yourself. Um, you know, it's kind of like a perfect option for all occasions. Mm. Uh, and yeah, it's just no one's ever going to be disappointed <laughs> by that wine. It's just a really good solid bet. Um, yeah, and sub 20 quid, I think it's a real bargain. Um, yeah. There's, you know... There's not going to be a lot of Bordeaux sub 20 quid that's probably going to be that good or, or certainly that fresh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think it's the freshness, despite being a Bordeaux blend, I think it's the freshness that really um, stands out. Well, certainly for me on this wine. Yeah. yeah. Cool. I think we've done that one. Benny, take us away on the final one. Yeah, so final wine... Um, there's a bit of history in all this, so do bear with me. But this is uh, this is a wine from Italy, but now we're in Tuscany, specifically Montalcino. And this is a Brunello de Montalcino. So the great variety is Sangiovese, um, 100%. The producer's Padaletti. Um, and we brought this from Leon Sanderman. Um, and it retails for about £61, I think it is. Um, but essentially, a really cool wine because... Yeah, it's our, it's, you know, it's our, it's our fine wine for this, uh, for this episode. But the, the producer, Padaletti, um, the Padaletti family are essentially re- have been really influential in the history of, <clears throat> in the history of Montalcino. Um, and their story, by default of them being there for so long, is slightly intertwined with, with the history of Montalcino. So just to give a bit of context about the family, they can sort of, sort of map their roots back to Montalcino to the year 1300. Yeah, which is completely insane. Like it's completely insane. And they've been producing wine there. Well, the earliest sort of notes of having vines <clears throat> under the Padaletti name in Montalcino dates back to 1571. So these guys have been there for a long old time and they've essentially been intrinsic in the, the history of Montalcino, which I'll attempt to explain a bit more uh, as we as we go on, so um, essentially, Montalcino uh, has sort of been fought over numerous times in in history. But Giovanni Padaletti, uh, this is back in fifteen twenty nine, was was an architect at the time, and he was tasked with coming up uh, and designing uh, a wall and the gates around the city of Montalcino that would protect it from invasion at the time. So that's your first guy, Giovanni. Uh, you then have someone else, this is like, you know, 300 years later, um, called Carlo. Carlo Padaletti in 1899 was responsible for bringing electricity to the township. And as part of that, it really accelerated the sort of uh, industrial, well, I say industrialization. It's a tiny, it's a tiny little hilltop town in Tuscany, but it accelerated the, you know, the sort of industry and economic development of the town itself and he also brought you know printing presses and sawmills and flour mills olive a, presses a, olive presses a cinema to um to the township as well um and in and amongst all this um he was also working with uh, the biondi santi family now <clears throat> biondi santi is a very well the, the most well established name in uh montalcino associated with with producing um brunellos and that's there's rightly so you know that they do get all the headlines for being you know the big names the most influential people in developing the region and the township as a uh as a you know site of sort of real interest from a wine producing region what wine producing sort of uh background and there are a few other names that's kind of fall slightly under the radar because Biondi Santi takes all the headlines. And Padletti is, is one of those names. And this guy, Carlo, who brought industry and electricity to the town of Montalcino, 
was working at the time with a member of the Biondi Santi family to establish a cooperative. Uh, this is back in 1925, uh, to establish essentially a cooperative to, I'm going to use the word commercialize, but I, I mean that in the sense that just to essentially give them access to a market. This is not a big wine producing family at all. Um, it's still family run and 27 generations it's, down. It's worth saying, it's, you know, at that stage, it was just essentially a set of families clubbing yeah, together. Yeah. And the Biondi Santi and a couple of others had gone to sort of international tastings and people had sort of recognised that something they were doing around that region was pretty astonishing in terms of output in the wine. Yeah, um, exactly. So we're not talking exactly. about some sort of huge commercial operation. No, it no, was no. just something to solidify uh, an area which they understood uh, to be different from the surrounding area. Exactly, exactly. And trying to yeah bring their wines to you know you the forefront of that, essentially. Um, but that's sort of a, a bit of a history about, yeah, Biondi Santi and Padalettis. But essentially, they've been there for 700 years at least, and they're still there today. So they're 27 generations down. Um, and yeah, they're, they're still in the town. Their cellars are actually located in the heart of Montalcino, and they've got a street um, that's named after them to sort of symbolize all that they've done for the township and the, and the region. That's when you know you've made it. When, you, when, you, yeah. when you've got streets named yeah. after you, you've hit wine royalty. Mm. Um, yeah, exactly. But the, the slightly different thing about um, Padaletti is that <clears throat> we know from uh, reading and also having, having gone there to, to Montalcino that most producers have, uh, you know, uh, the winery out in the countryside in and amongst their vineyards. Padaletti is, um, you know, they've got their vineyards and their cellars you know, out in the countryside, you know, together. Whereas Padaletti is slightly different in the fact that their cellars are located, as I mentioned, in the heart of Montalcino, but their vineyards are actually separate. So they sit north of Montalcino, um, which is kind of typically associated with the most sort of classic producing area of, of, uh, of Montalcino in, in style, at least. Um, so it's a slight difference there because they're not just, you know, out in the countryside like everyone else. They actually grow their grapes in the north of the town and then bring them in for yeah, cellaring and fermentation into the town. It's just like, yeah, can you imagine trying to do that with all your grapes, yeah, also literally the, carting them up the hill we, we, into, we've the, both into the been, town. We've both been to Montalcino and it's a sort of classic sort of Tuscan hilltop town. Um, and I can tell you, carting grapes around there probably isn't the easiest thing because the streets are seriously narrow. The walls are relatively steep. I mean, it's not quite Siena, but but it is relatively, um, relatively crowded and, and condensed. And it, I guess, you know, one of the cool things about Padaletti is that if you, understandably, you know, Biondi Santi is the family that often has all the headlines. But, you know, if you want something with true Brunello heritage and taste true Brunello heritage, but at around like, you know, half the price, let's just say, I don't know the exact price of the Biondi Santi, then really like look no further than Padaletti because it is a seriously, seriously um, cool wine. Mm. And they really respect true winemaking tradition from that area um you know firstly their vineyards are really high they're about 400 i think 400 430 uh, meters above yeah, sea level. I, I think it's like yeah it's like four 490 meters up yeah. yeah which is high um in 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 montalcino terms um for vineyards so the wines are typically quite fresh and not too heavy um and then on top of that in the cellar um you know they really respect winemaking tradition you know they age um the the wines in these huge uh, Slavonian oak body. Um, so in France, you'll go around and in Burgundy and to say in Bordeaux, uh, you'll see these sort of small French barrels or, or what you'd typically associate with a wine barrel rather than saying they're small. Um, 
And they're normally like, some of them have a bit of toasting. They impart quite a lot of flavor because there's more surface area and contact with the wine. But these Slavonian oat body are A, not as toasted, so they impart less flavor. But because they're so big, there's less wine uh, in surface area contact with the oak and therefore it imparts um, less flavor. And it just means that, you know, it, it it's not really, you know, sort of in any way, shape or form vanillary or overly modernized. It's just a super traditional Brunello. Uh, and yeah, I'm quite looking forward to trying it. I don't know if you, have you just had a sniff and a taste? No, no, no. I've, I've, I've just, uh, I've just smelled it, but I haven't actually, haven't actually tasted it yet. Um, yeah. And I think, yeah, one thing to say just while we're talking about the, the body is that, yeah, Padaletti, uh, they've been there for a long time. They're super traditional in their approach. They have one slight, um, sort of one slight thing they do against the traditional standpoint. And that's that they have one, large uh, French oak body, but it's French rather than Slovenian. And that's their sort of only deviation from a from the perspective of tradition. Um, but apart from that, they're super, super classical. Um, and that gives their wines, yeah, it allows the wines to express themselves. And it sort of means that you you, you sort of maintain the, the effect of the terroir exactly where the wine is grown, rather than imparting a load of oaky flavors into the wine that might otherwise might otherwise cover that. Um, Speaking of which, how's it tasting? Yeah, it's just so so it, good. It smells amazing. Yeah, it's so good. I mean, we we I think we uh, used a Coravin to extract a bit of this uh, about I don't know probably about an hour ago now, and on the nose, it's just changed even in that time so much. But it's perfumed, uh, lifted, but you can t- smell the depth. Um, it's almost got like this like mushroomy note, but then it's also like petaly, um, you know, cherry and 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 almost strawberry fruit. Really, really exceptional. And then on the palate, it's got like really lovely acidity, which is lifting everything. But but the tannin is also there, and it's giving so much structure, and it actually really, really coats your mouth. But it's all seriously in balance, uh, and just the profile is really good. It's got a slightly like almost spicy, uh, almost dried fruit finish, mm. and just. Honestly, it's just really, really exceptional. We should also mention this from the 2016 vintage. Um, and 2016 in 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 Tuscany um, was just an absolute banger, uh, almost perfect vintage. Um, and, you know, it it is priced accordingly, like typically, um, but it's well worth seeking out. And typically the Italian wines don't have as big a secondary market as some of the French wines. So the sort of 15s and 16s, the 15 was also a great vintage, also 2010. Um, they're well worth seeking out now whilst they're actually available because if you want a specific producer, um, they'll probably be in pretty short supply further down the line. Exactly, yeah. They'll be in pretty short supply plus um, the prices you know, are usually quite a bit higher. Whilst there's kind of a lot of fair value, you know, sec- uh, Bordeaux, age Bordeaux on the secondary market, with Brunello, the price rise tends to be quite steep if you're finding something with yeah 10 12 maybe 15 years of age on it just because there's there's not much of it around mm-hmm. um and yeah as hugo said the 15s and 16s are really really good the great vintages um also um hearing that 2019 which is going to be released to market in sort of february time next year so that's february 24 2019 is meant to be a really great vintage as well. Um, I'm actually going to Italy in December and January, and I'm going to be visiting Padaletti. Uh, yeah, I've got a tasting lined up with them, um, which I'm... Yeah, like, Merry Christmas to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, yeah, I, ca- I can't wait. I think it'll be um, it'll be a really yeah special visit. Um, so I'll be talking to them about uh, the 2019 vintage in, in quite a lot of detail, as well as a few other producers, actually. So um, we'll feed back to you, Hugo. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, nice. Well, we'll have to get let it you back. know if we should be buying. We'll, we'll have to get it. We'll have to get it uh, back on. 
Um, but yeah, this this honestly just comes so, so highly recommended. Um, and yeah, you know, it's a serious fine wine. It represents, you know, true uh, Tuscan and Brunello heritage uh, and reflects, you know, the place perfectly. Um, so yeah, definitely well worth seeking out. Um, and yeah, we got this one from, from, from Lynn Sanderman. So if you, if you, if you can't find anywhere to go and get it, definitely, uh, pop in and give them a visit. I think it's available off the shelves. Yeah. Yeah. It should be better off the shelves and online. So, so both. Yeah. Perfect. Well, with that, we wrapping up, wrapping up another episode. I think that probably does it for the three wines, keeping it short and sweet today. Um, I think final things to say is everyone, thanks so much for tuning in. Hopefully you enjoyed the episode. Um, please do check out our, our, our socials. Um, so our handles, the premier crew, we'll be posting this on YouTube, Spotify, Google podcasts, Apple podcasts, et cetera, et cetera. So wherever you're listening, um, also all the wine merchants where we bought the wines from and the wines themselves, we'll be posting the links to those across those various socials. So do check them out. If you want to get hold of them, use those links. Um, and yeah, I think thanks very much for tuning in and see you next time.